All right, good afternoon. You may have a seat. It's good to see everybody. Uh, welcome to Zoe Church. If you're new or visiting, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you don't know me, I know that there have been some visitors or people who have been around uh, lately. Hopefully I can meet you after service, but uh, if you don't want to meet me, if it's intentional that you've been avoiding me, that's cool too. Uh, you can meet James, and he's a lot friendlier and nicer and godlier and more pastoral, and, um, but I'm taller, so it's kind of the Saul thing. But anyway, let's jump in. So I had a little Saul joke for you. Uh, but we're getting back into the books of Samuel, okay? We were looking at 1 Samuel for pretty much all of last year and into this year. And today we're starting 2 Samuel. So if you could open your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, we're kind of on this journey uh, through these books. And I know it's been a little while, so let me catch you up to speed, just remind you a little bit. First and 2 Samuel originally in Hebrew were just one book. Okay, just one book called Samuel, but because it was long, it didn't fit on one scroll, they split it up into two halves. So we're looking at these in two halves, two separate series, but really it's just one story. So the first half in 1 Samuel, we called it After God's Own Heart. We were looking at David and kind of why he was chosen as king to replace King Saul. And it's because God was looking for somebody who had a heart after his own. Now, in 2 Samuel, we kind of step into the story in the middle. We step in right after Saul has died, and David ascends to the throne. And this series, with David as king, undisputed king, we're calling King of Kings. And hopefully you'll see why in a little bit. But anyway, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Let me read to verse 16. We'll pray, and then we'll get into it. 2 Samuel 1, verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening. For Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. David said to him, how is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your own head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Will you bow your heads with me? 
Father, we come before you this afternoon. God, we sit before your word. And God, I pray that you would speak to us through it. God, we know that your word is living and active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it can cut into our hearts. But God, we know that through your word, you don't just convict us, you don't just tear down the sins and the idolatry that we have in our hearts, God, but you also perform spiritual surgery on us, that you build us up, that you heal us. So God, I pray that you would use your word to its full effect this afternoon. God, I pray that it won't be my words, but that it'll be your word. And I pray, God, that lives would be transformed. I pray, God, that our minds would be renewed. God, I pray, Father, that people here, God, would be drawn to Christ. God, it's all about him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What makes somebody a good person? What makes somebody good? How do you think about that in your estimation? Like when your company is hiring somebody new and there's someone that you're going to have to work with for a long time, or, or maybe when your daughter brings home her new boyfriend, God forbid, and you're trying to figure out if this guy is good for your daughter, or maybe when you move into a new area and you meet the neighbors, how do you think through, okay, these people are either good people or they aren't? How do you decide? How do you evaluate? How do you discern? One of the greatest short stories of all time is A Good Man is Hard to Find by Flannery O'Connor. You guys know it? Okay. A lot of no's and nothings, so that's good. I'll tell you about it. It takes place in the South, mid-20th century or so, and it's about this family that's going on a vacation. Okay, so they live in Atlanta, Georgia, but they're going down to Florida for vacation, as you do. That's where everyone goes. Now, it's a family with three kids, a mom and a dad, and a grandma. Okay, so Bailey is the father, and then he has three kids. One of them's a baby. His wife is unnamed. But the main character of the story is grandma, the grandmother. And right away in the beginning of the story, the grandmother, sorry, I'm having trouble with this mic, as I do oftentimes. Um, hopefully it'll stay. In the beginning of the story, the grandmother is talking about how she doesn't want to go to Florida. Okay, because she's read about this guy named the Misfit, an escaped convict who has gotten out of jail, and it says that he's going to Florida. So she's like, let's go to Tennessee instead, let's go somewhere else. But they're like, man, don't worry about that. They get in the car, they override the grandma, they drive down to Florida. And as they travel, not a lot happens at first. Really, you're just getting a picture of what this grandmother is like. She's embarrassed by her grandchildren because they're not proper enough. Their manners aren't that good. Back in her day, children behave better. She talks to anyone she meets about how times have changed, right? When she was young, you could just leave the door unlocked and no one would come in. But nowadays, can't trust anybody. She dresses up for the car ride just in case they get in an accident because in her words, okay, she doesn't want to be seen as anything but a lady. So if she's dead on the side of the road, she wants the first responders, I don't know what it was like in the 50s, but the people there to see that she was a proper southern woman. And then they do get into a car accident. That's the big thing. They're driving down this dilapidated dirt road and grandma's cat, which she insisted on bringing, jumps up and lands on Bailey's shoulder when he's driving, surprises him. He makes a crazy turn. The car flips over and goes into a ditch. Now, everyone's okay at first, but they're in the middle of nowhere. So they flag down the first car that passes by and guess who is driving said car? A random guy. No, it's the misfit. The misfit is driving the car. 
And the grandmother who had been reading about him recognizes him right away, and she says, you're the misfit. And he says, it would have been a lot better for you if you didn't know who I was. And a lot happens. There's some conversation. But the misfit has his cronies take Bailey and his family into the woods, and you hear five gunshots. The grandmother panics. I know you're a good man, she says to the misfit. I know you wouldn't shoot a proper lady like me. And he thinks for a second, and he looks at her, and he says, actually, I'm not a good man. And they talk a little more, and they talk about Jesus. She says, surely you know about Jesus. I'm going to pray to Jesus right now. And they're talking about him, and there's a moment where it seems like maybe she's getting through to him. And he says, you know what? I don't know about Jesus. He says, you know, maybe I wish I was just there. Uh, They say Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe if I was there, and maybe if I saw it, and I knew for sure that Jesus was actually alive, maybe I'd be a different person. And in that moment of realization... She reaches out with her hand and she puts it on his shoulder. But when he does, or when she does this, he springs back from her as if he had just been bitten by a snake, it says. And he fires off three shots right into her chest. And that's the end of the story. And now some of you guys are like, there's kids here, man. Jesse, what is wrong with you? Why do you keep doing this kind of stuff? Well, the thing is, you heard the passage, all right? It's not rated G by any means. At the very end of this passage, there is an execution. Now, I'm not trying to be shocking for the sake of being shocking. I'm not trying to be, you know, uh, too uh, vulgar or trying to belabor the gory details. But sometimes the Bible deals with these stark realities, doesn't it? It deals with violence, life and death, and questions that relate to eternal things. So here's the deal. Okay, it's possible to talk a lot about things in church like goodness or about being good people or about being a good church. We talked about this before. It's easy to judge others for failing to be, quote unquote, good in our eyes without really ever deeply considering what that actually means. What does it mean to be good? What are we talking about? And I'm talking about character in general. I'm talking about who we really are. See, the thing about this story, part of the reason why it's so great is because the grandmother presents a certain version of goodness. She's superficial. She's all about appearances. She's unaware of her own faults. She considers herself a quote-unquote good person because she has manners, because she was raised a certain way, and she bemoans that there aren't many good people around anymore. But then when she's confronted with mortal danger, you realize that she doesn't understand goodness at all. And she looks at this misfit, this criminal guy, a murderer, and she says, I know you're a good man. I know you're good. Turns out what she knew about the misfit, about goodness, was completely wrong. Tragically wrong. Now what about us? What about us? As we begin this series in 2 Samuel, what about you? What about me? What do you think about goodness? Because let me tell you just right off the bat, and I'll try to prove this throughout the sermon from the text, but let me just tell you right off the bat that goodness and how we think of it and conceive of it, it matters. And to get it wrong would be tragic. Everything important in life has to do with goodness. Think about all the important realities in your own life. Think about how you deal with other people, relationships. Think about the expectations that you place on others around you? Do you ever feel like a good person is hard to find? Do you feel like the people you meet are jerks and difficult people? The question is, why is that? How are you thinking through that? What's the standard? How you think about goodness, it affects how you parent, 
right? I mean, we're not just trying to make our kids a certain way. Like, we're not just trying to give them food. We're not just trying to make sure they're alive. Hopefully you are doing that. But we're also trying to raise them up a certain way, trying to instill in them values. What are those values? What does it mean to be good? What are you trying to give to your kids? What do you get on their case for? What do you correct? What do you let slide? And for all of us, okay, maybe you're not a parent. Maybe you you don't interact with people that much. But for all of us, goodness and how we think about it really has a lot to do with how we perceive ourselves. Do you view yourself as a good person? Do you look down on other people for not meeting up to your standard? Is it possible then, I ask you right now as we start, is it possible that maybe, maybe you might have a wrong view of yourself? Because there are people who think they're good, but they're not as good as they think. Now, okay, we're starting 2 Samuel. It's been a layoff a little bit, but we're hitting the ground sprinting. Just a couple of days have passed in the narrative since the events at the end of 1 Samuel. The biggest problem David faced in 1 Samuel was not Goliath, it was Saul. But now Saul is suddenly out of the picture. Saul was killed in battle, he's gone, and now things are about to change a lot. David alone takes center stage. And the weight of Samuel's words all those years ago, and you might remember all those chapters ago, loom large over this passage. Do you remember what Samuel said when he chose David as king, when they rejected Saul? What Samuel said was, God has chosen somebody that's better than you. He said that to Saul. Someone better. Someone who is more good. The question is, why is that? What about David makes him that way? See, Saul showed us through many chapters, through many tribulations, that a good king is hard to find, what is David going to show us about true goodness, about ourselves, and ultimately about who God is? Let's get into it. Three points from the text, three headings to help us organize our thoughts. The test, the tears, and the trial. Okay, just putting it out there for you. All right, Matt's going to give me some tape because that's just how it goes over here. One time I had blue tape, and... um, yeah. Anyway, so uh, story for another time. But someone was saying, you know, you know, I'd like to donate, you know, a new mic for Jesse because it seems like the mic doesn't work. And someone said, it's not the mic. Okay. <laughs> it's the user. All right. User error. So anyway, I admit it. Okay. The test. The test. Okay. First point. The test, which is about how circumstances bring out our true character. Okay. Whether we're good or whether we're bad. Verse one. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days back in Ziklag. So, okay, in one verse, you have a summary of the past two chapters. First Samuel 30, two chapters ago, you had David in a battle with the Amalekites. You might remember this. David comes home to Ziklag where he's been living, and everything's gone. All his stuff is taken. Even his family has been kidnapped. An Amalekite raiding party had taken everything away. He's super tired, he's exhausted, he's discouraged, and his men, his band of men, his soldiers, they've had everything taken too, and they're so discouraged, they're so disillusioned with his leadership that they're, they're almost ready to mutiny against David. I mean, it's, it's one of David's lowest points, but David strengthens himself in the Lord. He, he tracks down the Amalekites, he gets everything and everyone back. But the thing is, even though he was anointed king all those years ago, At the end of 1 Samuel, he's never felt further from the throne. Things have never been worse in his life. And then 1 Samuel 31, the camera switches to Saul, 
And we see that Saul finally gets what's coming to him. He is killed in battle. David doesn't know this yet, but he's about to find out. So verse 2, we set the scene in verse 1, verse 2. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn, dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. So, okay, imagine this through David's eyes, if you will. He sees a man approaching in the distance. He doesn't know who he is, but he sees that his clothes are all torn up and he's covered in dirt. And in those days, these were telltale signs that something bad had happened. Okay, you did this kind of stuff when you mourned or when you grieved, when you received bad news. You would rip your clothes in anguish. You would dump dirt upon your head. You would make yourself look bad. So it's clear from how this guy is approaching that he's not an enemy. He's a bearer of bad news in some way. The text says he bows down respectfully. And this all starts very interesting. Verse 3, David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Now, remember, David knows about the battle. Okay, David was almost there on the wrong side. He almost had to fight for the Philistines. He got out of it. But he knows that a major battle happened between his people, the Israelites, and the Philistines. Verse 4, and David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. This is true. We already know this as the reader. But this would have been, understand, this would have been life-changing news for David. But hold that thought. Verse 5. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Now, pause here for a moment. Okay, we're going to camp here for a second. It's easy to skip over verse 5. But think about it. Okay, David wants corroboration. He wants him to tell him how he knows this Think about it. Why do you think David doesn't trust him right away? You know, it reminds me of a story. A few years back, okay, I received a knock at my door, and there was a guy there uh, with his clothes torn and dirt on his... No, I'm just kidding. There was a guy there with an AT&T shirt on, and he said, could I interest you in DirecTV Internet? AT&T just bought out DirecTV or whatever, and uh, uh, do you want to get it? And it was Texas summer, it was hot, and he was all sweaty, so I felt kind of bad. And having mercy on him, I said, uh, do you want to come? Actually, Christine was like, hey, you should give him some water. So I was like, oh, man. So I said, okay, uh, you want to come in for a second? I'll give you some water. And he was like, thank you, thank you. So he comes in. He's sitting at our table. Um, and he's like, well, let me just tell you about it real quick. I'm like, we already have AT&T, so don't worry about it for Internet. And he says, no, but DirecTV is the same thing, but it's cheaper. Exact same thing. You already have it. It's not even changing your contract. We'll just upgrade you or like lower your contract. I was like, all right, sounds good. I gave him his water. He left. And then the direct TV guy comes and he sets it up. And and then that's that, right? A month later, I get my bill. And guess what? It's not lower. Okay. It's actually higher for the exact same thing. So I'm like, what in the world? So I call this guy on his, you know, he gave me his cards. I call him on a cell phone and I'm like, hey man, What's the deal? You know, and he's like, who is this? And I'm like, you know, okay, you came to my house, right? You told me it was going to be the same price or cheaper. I mean, it's going to be cheaper. And he's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know, man. Uh, let me just uh, look, 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 look into the right here, you know, like, oh, you're breaking up. My man straight up lied to me. And I learned something that day, okay? Spectrum, right? No, I'm just kidding. I learned something that day, something I should have known already. I did switch to Spectrum, though, for real. But I did learn something that day, something I should have known. People have agendas. 
Right? Not necessarily bad or good, but people have reasons why they tell you things. It could be a good agenda. Maybe he just wants to bless you and help you. Or maybe when he says he's a salesman, he's trying to sell you something and his job is based on commission. I'm not saying all salesmen are dishonest or anything like that, but I wasn't thinking about what he could possibly get out of it. See, the thing is, David knows that this news is a big deal. And it's not just news. He wants to know, why are you telling me this? There are many reasons why. David doesn't know what happened at all. When this young man comes knocking at David's door, so to speak, and tells him the king is dead, I mean, there's so many questions. Is this a trap? Did Saul send you? Saul's been doing everything in his power to try to kill David. How can I know that what you're saying is true? Are you even right? If I start acting like Saul is dead and he's not, that's going to be trouble for me. What do you have to get out of it? And the truth is... And David is wise. This guy is lying. Because look at the text, verse 6. And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Goboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. Now, okay, this actually happened. Okay, it's been a while for us, a few months. But if you just go back to the last chapter, this actually happened. Okay, but keep reading. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. Now, hold on a second, real quick. This doesn't sound quite right. And I'm just going to show you. Flip back with me to 1 Samuel 31. For me, it's on the same page in my Bible. Look at verse 3. This is what we saw already. 1 Samuel 31, verse 3. The battle pressed hard against Saul. And the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Okay, so that's what happened. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Where's the Amalekite in here? He's not in there. There was no room for the Amalekite to have snuck in in the middle. The armor bearer was asked by Saul to kill him. He said no because he feared greatly. And then Saul just fell on his own blade and killed himself. And the armor bearer killed himself. So now go back to 2 Samuel 1, verse 7. What does the Amalekite say? And when he looked behind him, he saw me. He saw me and called to me. And I answered him, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. So it's not like the Amalekite is the armor bearer or something like that. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me. And yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. Now, step back for a second. Let's say you're reading the Bible on your own. This happens in back-to-back chapters. I've known some people who have thought, okay, is the Bible contradicting itself? It seems like there are two accounts of what happened but you got to look at it more closely. See, when we look closer, what we actually have is, in verse 31, the Bible telling us what happened, okay? And then you get to 2 Samuel 1, and what we have here is not the Bible directly telling us what happened. Instead, we have the Bible telling us about an Amalekite who's telling David a version of the story that makes it all about him. And so to paraphrase the great Bible teacher, Dale Ralph Davis, when you're given the choice to believe either the Bible or an Amalekite, you believe the Bible every time. 
And I would amend that even. The truth is, when you have the choice to believe either the Bible or a human being, believe the Bible every time. No need to just single out the Amalekites to hate on them. Look at the end of verse 10, the part we didn't read. Look at what happens. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Okay, this guy definitely has an agenda. But what's interesting is that he actually has the crown and the armlet too. So he was there. He's telling mostly the truth. He saw Saul dead on the ground. He took it before the Philistines came. He found himself in the right place at the right time. But what he's doing here is he's taking advantage of the moment for his own personal gain. He's not just an innocent bystander. He's not just a David fan. He's somebody who wants the reward of being the guy who got rid of the Saul problem for David. It's not enough for him to just spread the news. It's not enough for him to just give the crown. He wants to make sure that David knows that it was him who took care of it. So what does he want? Who knows, a well done from David, maybe a special place in the kingdom, maybe a monetary reward, maybe all of the above. But his lie, and the Bible wants us to see that it's a lie. It puts these stories back to back. His lie betrays the greediness and selfish ambition of his heart. And David doesn't know exactly what happened, but who knows? All of us. We do. So the Bible is teaching us something. What we do with what we have is who we are. What we do with what we have is who we truly are. Plug the Malachite into that. What he did with the situation he found himself in, with the crown, with the armlet, it revealed his true nature that he was a selfish guy who wanted things for himself. See, the test of who we truly are is in how we react and respond to the situations we find ourselves in. Every situation we find ourselves in is a test in this sense. Every day we have opportunities to discover what we're really made of. It's not like random things happen and it has nothing to do with us. Your kid has a meltdown in Kroger. That's a test for you to see what kind of parent, what kind of person you really are. Some of us get exposed for being angry people even though we don't want people to see that. We get exposed for having a short fuse. We get exposed for being extremely image conscious. We don't worry about how our kid is actually behaving. We just want to make sure no one sees. We don't care about dealing with it. Some of us get exposed for not caring enough. Our kid's just going crazy and we're just shopping. Maybe you find out one of your good friends was talking bad about you behind your back. Maybe you talk bad about them in response. Maybe you cut them off. Maybe you call them up and angrily give them your two cents. All of these responses to these situations, they reveal something about who you really are inside. And we might have craftfully, craftfully, uh, carefully crafted, excuse me, image, images that we have created for ourselves. But when we do things, when we respond and react, that's who we really are. Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe you get a big bonus at work. How do you spend it? Or do you save it? Or do you invest it? Or whatever it is, how much do you give? It reveals who you really are. These choices reveal our true nature, regardless of how you might like to think you are, how you might want others to see you as. And the thing is, as Christians, it's easy to consider ourselves as good people, just because we have the right beliefs. But this text already challenges us in that area. Sure, we might have good convictions. 
We might have right convictions. It might be our stated conviction that lying is wrong and integrity is important and forgiveness is a way of life. But our stated convictions don't matter at the end of the day if our situational choices in the moment don't match up. You might say that lying is wrong. You might be able to teach a class on it, preach a sermon on it. But if you're at, you know, the restaurant and your kid just turned six and they say there's a discount, five and under, what do you do? I mean, he, uh, you got to look at your own life. you got to look at what you actually do. And this young Amalekite reveals who he really is. And the thing is, the Amalekite's not a main character. But why this is important is that it primes the pump for us to think about human beings this way. Because David is a man with a nature just like this guy's. And David has just been given life-changing news. And we're supposed to look at David and think, okay, how is he going to respond? And what's it going to say about him? And this leads to the second point. Okay, the test is the first point. Everything's a test. Especially big things, but everything. David faces a test now, and how he, re- how he reacts is the second point. Second, the tears. The tears. And really, this is, this is about uh, how God defines goodness. How does David respond? Verse 11 Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. Tears his clothes and he grieves. Now, do you remember The Wizard of Oz? Any of you guys ever seen that movie? Okay, what happens is Dorothy, right, she lives in Kansas. A tornado comes, maybe a little too soon for us. We live in Texas, but a tornado comes and takes her house away and somehow carries her off to Oz. It's a dream, whatever. But the tornado takes her to Oz, the magical land. The house lands right on top of the wicked witch of the East who is like reigning terror over the munchkins. If you've never seen the movie, it sounds super weird. And it is. It's very strange. But the wicked witch of the East, she does not survive. And the munchkins who have lived in fear of her, when they see what happened and they see what Dorothy has done, they celebrate. Right? They're, they're so happy. There's singing. And do you remember the words to the song that they sing? James, come on. Let's, no. So they sing a song, Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead. Right? There's so much joy, excitement, freedom. It's what happens when the biggest problem in your life has now suddenly been taken away. Now, I say that because think about David for a second. Put yourself in his shoes. You're anointed king when you're a young man, okay? And soon after that, the Philistines attack Israel, and they send their champion, Goliath, who is a giant, and he says, okay, I'll fight one of your warriors one-on-one for all the marbles, no need to shed all this other blood, and everyone's too scared because Goliath is such a crazy, scary guy. Even Saul is too scared. He's the king, but David goes, and in faith, he defeats Goliath. And God gives him the victory, and he's riding high. And then on top of this, David is a really good, like, harp player. And Saul asks him to play for him in the royal palace. And they're so tight, and Saul loves him. And Saul makes him one of his bodyguards. Saul even uh, has him marry his own daughter, so he becomes his father-in-law. And David's life is going really good. But then one day, Saul, in a jealous rage, goes kind of mad. And he tries to kill David by throwing his spear against him while he's playing the harp. And then this happens again. I mean, when the Malachi's talking about Saul leaning on his spear, David probably has like PTSD flashbacks of that spear. He knows exactly what that spear looks like. And then it just gets worse. David goes home and he knows that he's in danger. Saul sends soldiers to murder this guy in his bed. 
So David escapes. He's on the run. He's in the wilderness. He's in caves. And if you're in his shoes, think about it, okay? All of a sudden, you're cut off from your family. You can't go home. Your life is literally in danger. And then twice you have this opportunity to end it yourself. Saul shows up and he's vulnerable and you could kill him and just end it. And he deserves it. He's evil. He's gone crazy with power. But David doesn't do it because he knows he shouldn't lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. It's not his place. So he lets him go. Finally, it gets so bad, he flees to the Philistines. He flees to Gath, Goliath's own hometown. And they actually welcome him. Why? Because they know how bad it's gotten with Saul. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. I mean, think about it. David's been far from home, constantly in danger, constantly stressed. His family is in the crosshairs. His men are struggling. His life has been a living hell. And it's all because of one man by the name of Saul. In fact, turn with me to Psalm 57. One of the interesting things about First and Second Samuel is that it tells the story of David. And David wrote a lot of psalms, a lot of songs about what he was feeling during these events. And Psalm 57 is one of the psalms he wrote when he was on the run from Saul. And check it out. Okay, Psalm 57. Look at the script at the top. It says, To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. I'll just point out a couple verses. Look at verse 4. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Verse 6. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way. Like he's on the run. He's writing a song about how he feels inside And he's like, my soul feels like it's surrounded by lions. He was struggling inside. And yes, he trusted in God. He hoped in God. And God did deliver him. But it doesn't mean that it was easy. The pressure, the anxiety, the toll on his psyche. See, let me ask you guys a question. Okay, really put yourself in issues. What takes a toll on you? I mean, we all have things, right? We all got problems and issues. What's that thing or what are those things that put a pit in your stomach? You know what I'm talking about? What keeps you up at night? Or when you think about it, it, it's enough to ruin your day. What do you stress eat about? What do you journal about? What do you complain to your spouse or to your parents or to your friends about? What do you pray about? What's that number one thing that you beg God for? It could be a financial problems for some of us. It could be stuff on the news. It could be a difficult person in your life, a thorn in your side. I mean, we get that. We all know what that's like. And I know that you know you should trust God and all of that. I know you're walking through it. But think about this. Imagine for a moment that whatever this problem is suddenly gets taken care of in one instant. Imagine someone comes up to you and says, I have some news. That problem in your life, I've taken care of it. What do you say? What do you say? I think it starts with ding dong, maybe. But back to 2 Samuel 1, it's absolutely reasonable, okay? My point is it's absolutely reasonable. It's even expected that David might celebrate a little bit, that Saul is gone. 
At the very least, he might smile with, uh, with relief or make a comment that Saul made his bed or even praise God and say, at least God, finally, you delivered me from Saul. But look at the text again, verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. The first thing David does is grieve and lead his men in grieving. And maybe you say, sure, I mean, he's grieving for Jonathan, his best friend, and for his friends who died. No, look at verse 12. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for who? For Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of, of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. He weeps, yeah, he weeps for his friends and kinsmen, but he specifically weeps for who first? For Saul. He weeps for the guy who single-handedly made his life a living hell. It's the opposite of what you would expect. And as all things do, this reveals character. The character of David. Who David is. See, instead of celebrating for himself, he mourns for others, including his enemies, including people he doesn't know. Instead of celebrating for himself, he mourns for others. And this, my friends, is... An illustration of what the Bible says is good. See, okay, we haven't defined goodness yet, right? It's not an easy word to pin down. In fact, I looked it up in the dictionary, and guess what it said? Goodness is the quality of being morally good. Like, thank you. You know, we're in the 21st century. Maybe if I had better internet. You got to love it when they do that, right? When they use the word in the definition. Goodness is good. It's just being good, okay? Stop checking, okay? Get, get out of here. But the thing is, it's the adjective, okay, before it. It's being morally good. At least that's a little helpful. And we can unpack that. What does it mean to be morally good or virtuous, as it says? Well, there's a scene, okay? In a good man, is hard to find. It's before the car accident. They stop at this barbecue joint. The owner is there with his wife, and it's a small town thing. It's called, I don't remember what it's called, but the guy's name is Red Sam. Okay, he's the owner. And Red Sam is talking to the grandma, and they kind of get on that stick that she always gets on, where, you know, people have changed so much these days. I miss the good old days. And he's like, I know, you know, like not a lot of people are helping people like me, you know. They kind of don't get what they're saying. They're talking and talking. And then Red Sam finally says, he's the one who gives the line that's the title of the story. He says, you know, a good man is hard to find. Everything is getting terrible. I remember the day you could go off and leave your screen door unlatched, that same old yard, not no more. And yet, when you're reading the story, even though they're complaining about all these other people and how terrible they are, Red Sam treats his wife terribly. He talks down to her. He bosses her around. He treats, he treats her bad right in front of everyone. And there's a contrast here. See, there's a certain kind of goodness that we might get into our minds, a certain kind of even religious goodness. And sometimes people talk about this, uh, dressing a certain way, talking a certain way, making sure people see you a certain way. It's not that your image doesn't matter at all, but it just never gets below the surface. It's all about appearances only. It's about externals. You know this, right? You go to church, you clean yourself up, right? You, you don't cuss anymore. You make sure you watch the right kind of movies. I'm not saying that these things don't matter. But these things don't get to the heart of what goodness is according to the Bible. Because what David shows us and what the entire Bible teaches is that real goodness, real goodness has to do with how you treat other people. That is the litmus test. Matthew seven twelve. 
the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You want to summarize the entire Old Testament in one verse? There you go. Or how about Galatians 5.14? For the entire law, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The one thing, the one marker you could look at, the one way you could evaluate yourself is, how do I treat other people? How do I treat other people? That's what God says is what is good. What does David do? He weeps for Saul, for Jonathan, for the people of the Lord, for the house of Israel. He doesn't celebrate for himself, even though he might have cause to do so. No, he weeps for the plight of others. How about you? How about you? There's nothing more important that we could talk about in church when it comes to our actions and our behavior and our quote-unquote moral goodness than how you treat other people. It doesn't matter what your theology is if you treat people bad. It doesn't matter if you've cleaned up your cussing. I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all, but it doesn't matter so much if you treat people bad. It doesn't matter if you give a lot of money if you treat people bad. You know, I've known people who only talk to people who they feel can give them something. And it becomes obvious after a while. They only talk to people maybe who are leaders or maybe people who have something to offer or who are fun. There are people who go through relationships like Kleenex, right? Just disposable, just going through one after another. I've heard people talk to their grown parents in ways that are so disrespectful, everyone else cringes around them. And I preach to myself. And maybe it's, we just don't think about others that much. Maybe we dominate every conversation. We're constantly talking and talking and talking. And when someone else starts talking, we pull out our phone start looking at something else. We complain about how little people care about us in our lives, but objectively speaking, if you just did an inventory of your actions, you hardly ever lift a finger to help anybody. Maybe you hate when people judge you or criticize you or challenge you, but then you turn around and do the same thing to others. And we might think we're good people because of this, 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 or that. You know, we went to church our whole lives, whatever it might be. We're proper Southern ladies or gentlemen. But if we don't treat people, the actual people in our lives well, if we don't love our neighbor as ourself, then we're not good people. We're not good people. And this is what makes David so surprising. David is one of the most unique people in the Bible. And we'll see that in a little bit. There's so much to David. And the Bible really pulls back the curtain on who he is. It shows us the good and the bad. But what we see here is that David actually has some good in him. He's surprisingly, refreshingly, even frighteningly different than most people. In fact, when I read First and Second Samuel, I always feel like, man, I see a lot of Saul in myself. But then I think about David and I'm like, this guy is nothing like me in so many ways. And of course, David has been having a hard time lately. But here we see clearly that there is a huge gap between him and Saul and him and most people. Saul wept for himself. David wept for Saul. David wept for Saul. And that's all the difference. And this leads to the final point, quickly now. The final point, the trial. 
we're going to punctuate how David is different. The trial, and this points us to something beyond David. Verse 13. After the morning, David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner and a Malachite. Now, David already knows he's an Amalekite, but he wants to get a picture of who this guy really is. And he says he's an Amalekite again, but he also says that he is the son of a sojourner. So he's not an Israelite, okay? And if he was just an Amalekite from far away, he wouldn't be bound to kind of the same loyalty to the king that Israelites would have. He's not his king. But he says, I'm a sojourner, meaning that he's a resident alien in Israel. Okay, He's the son of a sojourner. He was probably born in Israel. Okay, so Saul is his king, okay? And that's all David needs to hear. This tidbit of information seals his fate. Verse 14, David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid then to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, over his dead body, your blood be on your own head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed, excuse me, the Lord's anointed. Twice, David had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't because he was convicted that it was wrong. God made Saul king. It wasn't David's place to lift his hand against him, no matter how evil Saul became. To kill God's anointed was to rebel against God himself. Now here, how many times? Twice, David mentions that Saul is not just any king, but he is the Lord's anointed. See, the Amalekite, he doesn't understand David. He thinks David is going to reward him. And you know, most kings would. Kings like from every other nation, kings like Saul, they were all about power and consolidating authority and political loyalty. But David is different. He is a righteous king. He says, how could you lift your hand against the Lord's anointed? He's viewing things on a completely different level. If this young man killed the Lord's anointed, then he deserves judgment. And David, really with the first royal command he ever uh, enacts, the first royal command that he ever orders, he orders an execution. But it's not petty. It's not personal. It's justice. And here we see undeniably why David is the king that God chose. Because David is someone who does what is right. David is someone who does what is right. He does what God wants. And that's the end of the passage. But there's one more problem. There's one more problem. Do you know what it is? What does David say at the end of this passage? He says, your blood be on your head. Because your own mouth has testified that you have done this, does David actually know for sure if he has killed Saul or not? He doesn't. And he never will know. He's not going to read 1 Samuel. He doesn't know. See, David is limited. He, he acts justly. Okay, this guy said it. He confessed. David did what was right in response to what he knew. But David is a man who is limited, and he can't always do what is perfect all the time. And this passage, it illustrates the twin ideas that will permeate the rest of this book. There are two strands of thought woven throughout 2 Samuel. One is that David is the right man for the job. He is better than me. He is better than you, most likely. I don't know, you might be pretty good. But I'll say for myself, his heart is softer. His devotion is greater. His love is purer. He's truly a man after God's own heart. He stands unique. And yet... Two, 
for all, for all the good things he does, he's still not good enough. And he will struggle. And he will fail in a way that will blow your mind. And it will break your heart. And by the end of this book, you will see things that he does that makes Saul's sins look small in comparison. What we see is that David is better than any of us, than most people who have ever lived, and yet he's still not good enough for what God requires. And it's why in the seventh chapter of this book, God tells David that one of his sons will be an eternal king, a better king. And it's why we're calling this series The King of Kings, because this book ultimately is not about David. David exists to teach us a few lessons, but ultimately to point us ahead to his greater son. See, the thing about the misfit, and we'll close in a sec, one of the things that bothered him, which made him the murderer he was, was he felt there was no justice in the world. People get punished for crimes they don't commit. He said he was in jail, and he didn't even remember why. So he said, what's the point of doing good? I might as well just do all these bad things if I'm going to be punished for things I didn't do. And we see at the end of this passage that David does punish a guy for doing something he didn't do. It's not David's fault. Just David can't perfectly enact justice. And this leads to this major question that has been hanging over this entire sermon. Why does it even matter? Why does it matter if you're good or not good? Why does it matter if you love people? Why does it matter if a good man is hard to find? It's because God cares about it. And the Bible says that God is just. He is perfectly just. And God will give to us everything that we actually deserve. He sees everything. He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts and our intentions. And at the end of our lives, we will stand before God, the judge, and he will give to us according to how we lived our lives. Did we love people as we loved ourselves? Did we love him with all of our hearts and souls and minds and strength? And if the answer is no, then there is judgment for us. Just like this man is executed for what he said he did, we will be punished for what we actually did. So you say, what hope is there? We're going to show up before the perfect king, the king of kings, and we are going to be guilty for what we actually did. What hope is there? Well, David's greater son was not just any man. See, no man, no one can be perfect. David wrote it himself. No one does good, not even one. David himself understood that. But Jesus Christ, the righteous, a son of David, was also the son of God. And he was born into our world. He took on our nature and our flesh, but without sin. He was the only one who deserved no punishment. But what he did was he went to the cross. And he loved us to the point of sacrificing himself and giving his life in our place. He paid our record of debt with his own life. We needed someone better than David. Jesus Christ is that person who is better than David. And you and I, we will stand trial for how we have lived our lives. But if we look to Jesus and we come to him right now, instead of receiving justice for what we have done, instead, we can receive mercy and grace and forgiveness and eternal life. We'll close here. At the end of A Good Man is Hard to Find, I said that the misfit talks about Jesus. It's kind of an interesting turn in this story. But they start talking about 
Christ. And he says, I wish I just knew for sure if he was actually alive because then I could be different. And the grandmother reaches out and he, and she touches his shoulder and he recoils back and he shoots her out of instinct three times. But I left out a detail. If you know the story, you know this. It's not that she touches him so much as what she says while she touches him. Because he's talking about Jesus. And she says this very strange thing. She says, why, you're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. She like looks at him in a different way. She says, you're one of my own children. And she says this as she reaches out to him. And these words plus the touch, it sets her off. And this ending has been debated endlessly. Like, what does she mean? Someone was like, was he really her son? Did she adopt him? I don't think so. In the moment, right, they were talking about Jesus. And the grandmother, through this conversation, facing her own mortality, sheds her own self-righteousness. And she realizes in that moment when he's talking about Jesus, that this murderer who was so different from her really wasn't so different at all. And the misfit kills her because while he was a bad person and he knew it, he had looked down on her for being petty and self-righteous and superficial. At least he was honest and he lived according to his own code. And when she connected with him, when she said, I think we're the same, it was too much for him to take. So he pulled back and he shot her. I think the point of this story is the same as the point of the passage, or the point of the book, rather, and we'll see it. The point is, whether you're you or me, you're the misfit or the grandmother, you're David or Saul, we're all sinners. And that's it. None of us are good people. A truly good person isn't just hard to find, it's impossible to find. That's why David wrote what he wrote in Psalm 53. But see, the thing is, when we recognize that, when we realize that about ourselves and when we embrace it, then and only then will we we be able to recognize and realize and embrace the one person who is actually good, Jesus Christ. It's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, it's when we turn away from our own self-righteous efforts to be good on our own and turn to Christ alone. That ironically, we can finally start being good. So Zoe, we've got to lay it all aside. The religiosity, the external things, the play acting, being image conscious. I'm not saying how you appear doesn't matter at all, but it's superficial. Lay those things aside. Look at yourself for who you really are in the mirror of God's word. And then turn to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful, God, not just for a king who is better than Saul, but a king that is better than David. And God, we know, God, that we deserve your wrath and your condemnation for our sin. But we're here today. God, we celebrate and we we rejoice. We are gathered here because you didn't leave us there. You didn't leave us in our brokenness and in our sinfulness. You sent your son to die for us. What an amazing thing that our king, the king of kings, would take our place so that we could be reconciled to you, so that we could be forgiven. God, I pray that as we 
saying to you now as we worship God that our hearts would be drawn to wonder that we would have a king like Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name.